A huge percentage of digital advertising dollars today goes to Google and Facebook, who dominate that particular sector. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the growth in digital advertising in the last two or three years has gone almost entirely into the coffers of Facebook and Google, who at least for the foreseeable future will continue to dominate that space. The ability to be able to bid for the attention, the eyeballs of particular target audiences, whether they're searching for a specific term, whether they live in a specific place, whether they like a specific sports team, is something that doesn't seem to be going away and tends to be rather efficient, thanks in large part to artificial intelligence. AI plays a huge role at Google and Facebook in terms of matching advertisers and advertisements with the eyeballs of the right audience in real time, with millions of advertisers and you know, at least in Google's side, billions of different keywords or Facebook side, billions of different advertisements. Being able to match those two together is definitely not a human task. So programmatic advertising already involves a good deal of artificial intelligence. But it doesn't mean that there isn't room for improvement from the perspective of the advertiser. Sure, Google can use AI, but can I use AI to further optimize the results that I'm getting from Google in the first place? The answer, as the years sort of progress forward here, is likely to be more and more yes. Uh, this week on the Tech Emergence podcast, we interview Lior Tasman, who is the CEO of Predictive Bid, which is an Israeli-based uh, digital advertising, kind of predictive advertising optimization uh, startup. Uh, they focus on applying artificial intelligence to some of the bigger issues in programmatic advertising to help coax out more ROI from ads. In this particular interview, we talk about what the future of programmatic advertising looks like from an advertiser's perspective. Namely, what are some of the areas of improving ROI that artificial intelligence is likely to be much better at than human beings and is already showing evidence of doing just that. Also, uh, what are the particular challenges of programmatic advertising in the near term that we hope to be able to overcome? And also, what does that look like in terms of the day-to-day -day life of a marketer? When artificial intelligence gets thrown into the mix to help determine segments, to help determine our bidding options for specific offers, to help optimize our advertisements, where does that leave the marketer themselves, whatever their role might be on the team? Laura has some interesting perspectives on all of those different questions, and I hope that it'll paint an interesting picture for those of you who are active in digital advertising for what the future might look like and the challenges that lie ahead, as well as the opportunities of applying artificial intelligence in that domain. So without further ado, this is Lior with Predictive Bid here on AI and Industry. So Lior, where I wanted to start first is sort of your ideas about what some of the current limitations and problems in the programmatic advertising world are. Obviously, you wouldn't found a company there if you felt like it was a perfect system already. What are some of the pervasive issues in the domain of programmatic advertising? Well, looking at the main acquisition channels, I would say that the two main problems today is are one, tying back all of the data that is accessible uh, for marketing. So using all available funnel data in the optimization processes and then crunching it with the right um, algorithm based on the specific data need, needs vertical and really utilizing um, that data into back into the marketing effort. So improving results based on the all available data um, is a really hard challenge to tackle. First, you need to be able to attribute the data and secondly, you need to really understand that. Yeah, and, and, and just to paint a picture of what that looks like in real life, like if, if somebody's selling, you know, it could be anything. It could be they're selling couches and chairs on the internet. 
It could be they are selling consulting services. What are some examples of some of that data that, that is hard to kind of factor into advertising, sort of what that would look like in a, you know, a business case here? So I would say in general, anything that really happens in the customer journey after he is performing the first conversion event on the website, whether it's a lead or someone leaving his details or someone shopping in an e-commerce site and adding stuff to his cart, um, measuring what happens later in the funnel, um, such as a closed deal with a sales team or even a, a sale that's happening 30 days after uh, someone originally uh, arrived at the website. Um, it's really important data that is really hard to tie back to your marketing efforts today. And it's also really hard to predict the tra- how the traffic that is coming into the website is going to likely uh, perform at the end of the funnel. So um, imagine a company with two uh, divisions of marketing and sales. Those two groups are usually in fight, right? Because yeah. marketing is, is, is generating leads for sales. And sales is complaining that the leads are in bad quality and that's why they can't reach their goals. Well, marketing is saying that sales need to improve their, their sales pitch. What you really want to expect to happen in, in such markets is that marketing would be able to use the end of the funnel data, sort of the quality of, of a lead, the quality of, of, of a potential uh, client, and optimize towards later in the funnel conversion events, um, not only looking at how many people left their details on the website, but also look deeper into how many of them are likely to be a, a big account. Yeah, and, and I guess that that's a that is challenging. You think about you know f- for the sales team example, like you said, I mean somebody could buy thirty days later. Somebody could hypothetically buy ninety days later. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of online advertising efforts for you know big ticket products or products with a really long sales cycle. Um, and it seems really difficult to say, okay, this kind of ad, you know, tends to convert, you know, and, and make a lead worth this amount of money if you can't kind of factor in when those when those sales were done. It seems like there's a lot that goes into this problem. There's there's the problem of like tracking individual cohorts and groups based on what ads they came from, and then looking at them long term over time. Uh, I know when I was running an e-commerce business, you know, a lot of the time we would kind of just look at the the customer lifetime value within the first seven or 30 days and say, okay, cool, that's that's how much a lead is worth. That's how much a front-end sale is worth. But of course, that's really not that accurate. You want to have a longer-term uh, perspective on these groups. And then there's also like tying in all that data, bringing sales data into your bidding, bringing you know, all this sort of events, like you said, after the initial conversion, all of the events after that, tying that into your future programmatic ads what are the challenges to bringing that that all together? What are the main barriers that prevent that from kind of becoming part of a coherent system? It seems like tying the data systems together is like a big part. Yeah. So I, I'd say I, I'd say the problem is is even more complex because you really need to be able to make decisions in real time based on all the historical available data. So you really need to be able to make a prediction of how likely someone who's coming to your website on Monday morning is likely to uh, convert. Uh, versus someone else coming in later that day or, or, or on Tuesday evening. So you need to be able to make that prediction and to use that data. And you also need to make it based on a lot of historical data. You know, and tying the data, uh, as for your question, tying the data is a really complex problem because it, it involves several data sources and not only a singular data sources. While a lot of the companies, if you really look 
deep into the funnel and, and, and try to see how they measure their results or what kind of CRM or BI system they're using. The problem varies and, and the solution varies between companies because suddenly you go into all of their accessible data. And this is not usually a very general case. So each company would actually need its own solution. Um, and it, ha- it will have its own data needs and specific data points that they're tracking. So you need to tie data between several um, data platforms and you need to crunch all of the data. So that's a huge amount of data. Well, there's also other set of data that you want to bring into such a problem, which is what we usually treat as third-party data. So there are a lot of factors or external data points that could also affect our, our how you want to run your marketing efforts. Yeah, this is um, this is interesting, and, and I'd actually like to touch really briefly on that point about third-party data. Obviously, this is becoming more and more popular. People are purchasing data sources that might inform their own kind of business decisions, their own targeting and segmentation decisions, their own sort of willingness of how much they're willing to pay for a lead in a particular sector, space, or you know, geography. Um, talk about some examples of third-party data that maybe you folks have worked with or seen um, that ends up being part of this marketing mix. Like you said, we need as much as we can to make real-time decisions. What are some of these outside data sources that people might buy? What's a business example of that? So I'd, I'd say that the, like the classical example is weather. But before I touch that, I'd say calendar is probably the most obvious external data source that you might want to use. And when I say calendar, it's a lot of different verticals have different uh, seasonal effect or different days in the week or, or a specific you know, calendar event or holidays that really affect the potential conversion rate in specific verticals. Um, so calendar is an event is something as external source that you definitely want to utilize and check the correlation between your marketing efforts also, weather and e-commerce is also or, always a good advice, but it's funny to also mention that weather has uh, a dramatic effect on how people buy services or purchase online. So when it's cold outside, more people stay at home and potentially perform more shopping on, on e-commerce, whereas when it's hot outside, people tend to go out. So, for example, if you are a big e-commerce company, you would want to use that data or if you look at more traditional markets like insurance, so different type of insurances is, are likely to be made during the first part of the year or specific months that are stronger. And, and this is relevant for a lot of verticals, but in a different way. So this is, I'd say, one type of third-party data. And then the other part, which is kind of first-party to third-party, is other marketing activities uh, that are more offline or harder to measure are things that you would essentially want to use on your existing performance or programmatic efforts. And I'll give an example on that. So yeah, yeah, please. For example, a big brand could be uh, advertising on television in specific regions. So it only makes sense that on those specific regions, all of their online marketing efforts would have higher competitiveness during the time that the ad is running on television because people are more likely to look for them and there's more brand awareness. So this is another type of, of data sources that we usually see company try to tie in or at least use in their efforts. Got it. So, so they can factor in some of their own marketing efforts. They can factor in calendar and seasonal things. Now, 
these calendar and seasonal effects, is this something that normally companies would already have sort of themselves sitting around somewhere and they could just factor it in? Or would they have to purchase this sort of historical seasonal impact across this industry and, and purchase data from someone else or somewhere else in, in order to factor that into their programmatic efforts? Or generally speaking, is a lot of this seasonality already well enough understood within a company that a company can just use the data they've already collected? So that's a great question. And, and this maybe leads to another interesting thing. So I'd say that the, data, the seasonal data and effects of the market is usually data that sits uh, within the marketing team's head. So they are familiar with the industry. They know what to expect. But when you want to really use that data in the marketing efforts, you need to map it better. And the way to do it is use that data as an external or another data source for the marketing optimization. So essentially, the more data sources that you include, you want to test the correlation between those sources um, and make a prediction based on those sources of how the effect is going to be on your market. And then you want to challenge that prediction all the time to see if you were right. So you, you'll be assuming that um, July is a stronger month. So either you know it a priorically with, with your team or either you want to try it, but then you will need to measure if your prediction was correct. So I'd say that most of that data sits inside people's heads um, and they have a general understanding of that. But you, when you want to take it to the next level, you really need to map it as a data source. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, for example, even in the, now I, I ran a relatively small seven-figure e-commerce business, which is what I sold to fund uh, this company that I run now here at Tech Emergence. And I know even for us, we had done some purchasing of third-party data where we have a big database of customers and we purchased information about sort of those email addresses uh, to determine things like income, whether they owned a firearm, whether they had insurance, uh, all sorts of considerations that would maybe factor into our direct mail or email marketing efforts. And that was like a third-party data purchase from someone who could sort of add data richness to our existing database. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of stuff that also gets factored into programmatic advertising? Like people just legitimately go all the way out to some third-party vendor and say, hey, I want information on these customers or I want information on these regions. Is that also, in addition to what we have already stored inside the company, is that also something that, that you see more and more kind of making its way into programmatic advertising? I would say, first of all, is yes. I tend to split programmatic into two, into two major parts. One is the, the cost per click areas where it's harder to tie in the data and then pure programmatic, so um, online exchange, where the challenge there is to, you really need to make smart and fast decisions based on the maximal amount of data that you could use. And then you would buy big data sets to try and calculate really fast. Got it. Now, you said you broke up programmatic advertising into kind of two categories. Uh, the cost per click and the uh, something like pure programmatic. Um, just just for the the sake of educating the audience here, um, how do you break those up and delineate those two? Because that might be a useful distinction for people at home who are thinking about uh, these advertising channels themselves. So originally, if you look at the marketing world, there are the big players who uh, control big portions of the market. I'd say that those are the the search and, and social platforms um, of the world where. On those platforms, the auction or, or the competitive uh, side is being run solely within the platform itself, meaning that you'd be paying for a click and not for an, an impression. 
Um, so basically Google search, Facebook advertising, places where the calculation and decision and the bid that you need to place in an auction is bid that is related to how much you will pay if someone clicks on your ad. Yep. Um, whereas if you look at the programmatic exchange uh, side of things, you would see that there the competition is run between whoever has a seat in the exchange and the bid is being placed for a specific impression for a specific user. Um, so also that the algorithmic challenge is different. So if you need to make a calculation of how much you're paying for a click, it's different than making a calculation of paying for an impression. Yes, yes. And it's a computational problem. Yeah. Too complex. And and um, the these exchanges that you refer to, these are generally not Google and Facebook. These are sort of other, maybe smaller players across the digital space. These quote unquote exchanges that you refer to. Yeah, if you look, for example, at, at AppNexus as an example, and also there are there are different problems and challenges with the with the platform. So, you know, real time RTB, pure RTB would have a lot of fraud problems, really hard to track. Where the more more established platforms like Google and Facebook drive um, higher quality of traffic, so it's not remnants. It's essentially like the top of the line traffic that you would try to acquire for your businesses. So it's premium traffic. And less fraud, but it's more expensive, of course. Got it. Um, okay, so that's a useful delineation. Now I think it, it makes sense for us to dive into where artificial intelligence sort of fits the bill in terms of solving some of these bigger problems. You talked about pulling in various data sources to make real-time decisions about what we're willing to bid on for what kind of clicks or you know exposure or whatnot. We talked about the problem of kind of plugging in all these data sources to make sense of sort of longer tail conversions and maybe you know after 90 days we had a campaign that was way better than break even and we didn't realize that in the first month you know we have that problem um where does ai sort of fill an important role that maybe existing technologies and people couldn't in terms of solving those problems how does it sort of fit in here so i'd say ai is solving the data of crunch it's solving the problem of crunching big sets of data and then making a lot of relatively fast complex calculation, but not only making those calculations, but also improving a system that improves itself over time based on its prediction. Um, so eventually, you know, building a, a rule-based algorithm is relatively easy, but when you want to have a machine that really uh, reacts uh, to specific effects or unknowns that happens in the market and is better in predicting um, how likely the market is to behave, and you need to make and you need to make that decision really fast. You really need a system that evolves. So I think AI comes in 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 making those calculations and then helping in automating a lot of either manual or really hard to compute problems where the market is also changing over time. Um, and I think this is really important because if the market behaves the same all the time, you don't really need AI. Yeah. So, so, well, let's, let's just dive into that for just one second, Lior, with respect to what those changes might be. So can we walk through, I guess, what facets of sort of crunching information AI would do and how it would adapt to a changing market? Let's, you know, maybe we sell uh, furniture on the internet and maybe everybody buys furniture in the spring and the summertime, generally speaking. Uh, so we have those seasonal variances. We have fashions that come in and out of trend. 
So of course, you know what people click on and how people react to things, there will be some commonalities, there'll be a lot of things that change. There might be some people that become a lead and then buy 90 days later, uh, and, and that advertisement was way more than worthwhile, but we wouldn't have known for 90 days. What parts of all those moving parts would artificial intelligence be managing or monitoring uh, if we try to tie it to like a business, you know, we were imagining kind of selling furniture on the internet. It's easier for me to answer on, on, on the lead side, but let me try on furniture. I think on, okay, so on furniture or if it's e-commerce, yeah, um, there'll be two problems. One is trying to understand or predict um, the value of each of the deal or, or segmenting complex data into uh, groups. So segmenting it, using AI to segment groups into the better groups lower performing groups and middle groups and really make complex uh, calculations based on that. So one thing is is segmenting. The second thing is after you've segmented the data with AI, you really want to have a system in place that uses that data and tie it back to the, to your efforts and say, and then what we usually see is a lot of companies optimize. First, they use AI to optimize calculations. So anything that is like problems that are complex mathematical problems or things that they used to do with calculations. Um, so, for example, the bidding um, is, is always a, a great example where you need to predict across hundreds of thousands of different events during the day how much you'd like to pay in each of those cases. Got it. So it's like maybe uh, if you were able to tune into the actual information, you might know that you're not willing to pay more than, you know, $4 a click for this category of products on the weekends, for example. And maybe that would be something yeah, yeah. that would be very hard for humans to do every 20 minutes, make all those different different changes to all those keywords, but maybe AI would be able to automatically calibrate that based on sort of historical sales during those periods and those kind of patterns? Exactly. Even And, I, and again, you, just, you can break one day into, you know, at least 24 hours. Oh, yeah, each yeah, hour yeah. Could have each hour could have a different a, a different type of, of traffic coming in from a different source or for this, from the same source. And those calculations and decisions need to be made throughout the day and not only one time. So you can't treat weekend and work days and say, okay, I have only two groups where you yeah, actually yeah, can yeah, break yeah. each of them into so many subcategories, subgroups. For sure. And, and I guess um, this takes us into what I think will be the last question just based on time. But... I think it's worth exploring for a few minutes just to, to try to put some color on this experience of applying AI to marketing. It, it sounds to me like um, if I have a system that knows that I can bid more for a particular kind of click on, let's say, the you know Wednesday, Tuesday, and Thursday evenings for a certain product or something because it picked up on a pattern, it sounds as though there's a lot of kind of decisions in that respect being made, a lot of patterns being coaxed out. Um, obviously, the system would have to be fed with my sales data because it would only know mm -hmm. what clicks led to sales uh, if it can tie all that together. So there's there's got to be a, a pretty robust process for humans to set up a system like right. this, whether it's what you guys are doing at Predictive Bid or, or elsewhere. It seems like there's a, a bit of a setup here. It also seems like there are some decisions that would be green-lighted by humans. In other words, if for some reason the algorithm believes rightly or wrongly that I could spend twice as much, you know, for clicks to a certain category of, of products, maybe it's like, you know, lawn furniture, you know, during a certain period, 
you know, my, my presumption is there's going to be some of those decisions that humans would say, hey, uh, before the machine goes ahead and, and spends the money, let's bring the changes in front of some human eyeballs for a little bit of context and, and kind of acknowledgement before these strategies roll out. In other words, the setup has got to be tough. But after that, what, uh, what is the interaction of man and machine? Does machine present changes to man? Does man uh, set up the various boundaries? Hey, here's how much I'm willing to spend. Here's the maximum under any circumstance I'm willing to pay for a click, yada, yada, yada. And then the machine has to operate within that box. Um, what, is that, what does that interaction look like once a system's up and running? So I could answer how it looks from our end or but I think that that a very important term to to use or that I love to use is uh, efficiency. Basically, the, the the machine or algorithm is making the teams more efficient. I don't see AI replacing teams, and there are so many challenges and things that need to be factor factored than and guided by by human. That the machine is only there to make them more efficient and to make their decision making process easier or faster. Um, we believe people need to work smarter but not necessarily harder. And the way we usually see and with the way usually companies like to work with the algorithms is to set their own set of guidelines. So never go over that. Uh, um, that that's the maximum budget that we expect to um, use that month. Um, so this is one thing. So kind of making the rules. And the second thing that is really what's coming in from efficiency uh, is growth. Um, basically what what we've seen and what we also like advise and love seeing people do is actually growing their existing account because now they can feel calm about results in terms of the, the optimization processes and the complex calculations that are being made by an algorithm. And they also have much more time to really break down things into a more granular level. So imagine breaking a country into zip codes um, what level of granularity it allows you in terms of optimization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really hard to do when everything is not optimized. So I think that creative, for example, and really having the understanding of the market, you know, understanding or expecting how the market is going to behave is still something that is purely controlled or should be controlled by men. Yeah. Um, and people just make better, better decisions there. And when the machine is really working with or together with, uh, with the with the team, the results are always better. Yeah. So it's when we can when we can really put the problem in a specific box, we can calibrate. Uh, you know what the barriers are, what our limits are, what we're optimizing for. Uh, we know what information is being fed into the system. Then you know it's possible to trust the system to be able to make decisions based on these kind of directives. Uh, but like you said, you know in terms of what kind of new product line we want to come out with. You probably can't have a conversation with your artificial intelligence about the new kinds of couches and chairs you should launch 18 months from now uh, because you know th these systems are not at, at that level of uh, contextual overall business and fashion awareness as human beings are uh, at this current time. So that stuff's obviously uh, still purely in the human domain. And, and I would agree with you. I think a lot of the time companies have to say things like, augmenting, not replacing, because replacing is scary and replacing makes you seem scary. Uh, sometimes I think things genuinely are about replacing. In the case of marketing, I would tend to agree. I think at least in the near term, you know, the optimization aspect of AI, you know, I don't know of that many marketing operations that have a ton of people 
working purely on, you know, like calculator math problems and purely on, you know, like math and spreadsheet optimization and nothing else. There generally aren't entire floors of those people like we have in like banking. You know, people are just working on like paperwork stuff that could really be automated. I think in marketing, um, it seems like you're of the same belief that in general, in the near term, this is not going to be about replacing people, but kind of lifting up our level of optimization so that our creative work can maybe be more granular, more focused, more dialed into profit. It seems like that's kind of where you're pointed as well. Yes, I think it's, I, I love to look at it as, as the places that, or the things in work that you would, as, an, as a worker, you know, as an employee, you'd really like to see automated. And the things that you, you know, making the same calculations every day and using spreadsheets or, or whatever method, you sometimes get, you, you, you get used to it. But when you really think of that, about that as, okay, is, is, am I really doing it all over again today and tomorrow and then the next day? Well, this could be automated and I could probably be better in making other decisions in terms of, okay, let's break down or let's target those new markets and, and kind of break down or focus on, on growing the business and, and managing it, but not optimizing and running around, you know, beating our calculations all the time. Yes. And yeah, I agree. You also mentioned the setup. I'd say that yeah. digital companies today already have some sort of, of, of you know, data collect, collection methods in-house. Um, those would probably be broken into several systems. But tying the data, at least from one point to the future, is relatively an easy process because there are enough solutions and enough very easy to utilize ways to do that. Um, so it might be difficult to tie in historical data and to, to understand all of the funnel and make those connections. But with minor tweaks, I, I, we usually see companies achieving uh, at least a decent tracking method for all of their funnel. Um, and then from that point onward, you need to really start collecting data because you want to feed the system with, with some, some data. But it's, I wouldn't say it's a very complex integration uh, or, or setup, um, unlike you know, implementing a new CRM, because the marketing system usually just collects and pulls data from the system. They're not updating the data in the system. So it's uh, yeah, more yeah, and okay, good, data and good call. No, that, that is that is a distinctive difference. Yeah, when you switch a CRM and you have to migrate everything and rebuild all these different rules and make sure all your uh, you know your tags or categories get carried over and your time series data gets that 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 does seem like a massive headache and there's no way around it. And as a vendor company, it would behoove you to frame the setup as as simple as possible. But obviously, it would also behoove you as a company to make the setup uh, as simple as possible. Just to maybe wrap up on this point, because you brought it up, and I think it's useful to know, in general, what are the, the major categories of data that you have to plug together? You know, if we're just talking about a predictive bid for now, and, and I imagine, again, you know, similar products, it might be something somewhat similar. In terms of the major categories of data that you have to pull together, what are those major categories? And, and I guess briefly, you know, what does it look like to kind of bundle them all together? And this will be a good mental picture before we wrap up today. Um, I'll show I'll show you a picture after the, the interview. I'd say top of the line data with bottom of, of the funnel data. So this is always a complex data integration to do. It sounds complex, but it's relatively easy because you just need to tie in your marketing efforts either with your database or with your CRM. Um, so it's a one place to make the connection where whenever the conversion event, event happens, 
Um, and from that point onward, you're really able to track things. Got it. So from end to end. So it's like you need to factor in, you know, all your information from, you know, Google or Facebook or whatever programmatic systems you're using. And then you also have to look at what's the impact on your CRM and on your actual sales, you know, when you when you track your legitimate sales. And so long as those two are plugged together, you know, I guess you're able to bridge that kind of customer lifetime value calibration, predicting a value gap if you can bring those two together. Does third party data also sometimes get plugged into the same mix or does this get factored in in a different way? When you talked about calendars and seasonal effects, is, is this something that gets kind of plugged into the same uh, system or is this something that kind of humans just take into account when they build out their campaigns? So what we see today that is generally happening in the market is, is that humans take into account uh, when they're building out their campaigns. But what we're doing is we're working closely with them to use those know-hows in the algorithm. Uh, already as a model. So expect certain behavior uh, or tell the algorithm to expect a certain behavior during a certain time. But of course, the algorithm, because it's AI, is also, he will also be testing the thesis. But feeding it with, you know, seasonal data or know-how or, or definitely brings an effect. And then third-party data optimization is usually the, the last part in the optimization that you yeah, would want to yeah. tie in. Unless yep. it's a very, very vertical specific situation or like a major event that is really going to affect your market. In those situations, you, you want to be prepared. Yeah. And it does, it does make sense that generally third party data would be kind of last in line. You, you know, I want to know what I'm bidding for and how much I'm paying. And I want to know how much money have I freaking made over here uh, and from who. And that's got to be the base level, you know, ground level like information that's most important and then it sounds like third party in general definitely of kind of tertiary importance compared to those those first two so that's useful to yeah. to bear in mind i would say the general rule of thumb is think about what you're optimizing towards today or what your kpi is today whether it's number of leads uh number of sales or number of phone calls and then imagine the next point of data integration that you want to do as the next step in the funnel so thinking about leads, you probably want to factor in the quality of each and every one of the leads. Based on a phone call, you probably want to you know, include the duration of a, of a call or the quality of, of, of the talk based on your sales reps. And if it's online sales, you probably want to tie in the value of the sale or, the, or how many times is this specific or is it a repeatable process? So you want to tie several times the, the, the potential value. So basically thinking about what's the next step is a general good rule of thumb of what type of data you want to tie in. And then, of course, if you want to look towards the end, you probably want to think about how, how am I going to optimize towards lifetime value, ROI, or profit, whatever your next next KPI would be. So, But that's a, way, a, a really good way to, to attack it. Cool. I, I like rules of thumb in terms of thinking. I think they tend to get the gears turning in business people's minds. And I hope that we did just that uh, for the listeners here today. That's kind of a nice little end cap in terms of a lens to think through as people consider where artificial intelligence might play a role in their own programmatic efforts. Lior, that's all the time that we had, but I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights here with us in the AI and industry podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for the question.
That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications and business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.